Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here, and you are listening to Wikipedia. This week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Sarah Campbell, all about exercise, the gut, and our gut microbiome. So Sarah is an expert in this area, and we discuss the bi-directional relationship between the gut and our exercise patterns, what sex differences might exist, and the relative usefulness of probiotics and prebiotics for helping optimize our gut health. It's such an exciting time for research in this area with so much that we don't know, However, Dr. Campbell is pioneering the research with regards to what we do know. So hopefully you enjoy our conversation. Now, Dr. Sarah Campbell is an associate professor and the graduate program director in kinesiology and applied physiology at Rutgers University. She's got a specialist research area in metabolism, the gut and the impact of exercise on the gut. And I've got a link as to where you can find Sarah and her most recent publications in the show notes. Now, before we kick off into the conversation, just like to remind you that the best way to support this podcast is to hit like and subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. That would be amazing because that just means that more people are made aware of the fact that Wikipedia exists. Further, if you want to go that one step ahead, you can click subscribe to recipe portal access on my website, mickeywillardin.com. 12 bucks a month, you get a regularly updated recipe library, access to our Real Food Nutrition Community page, weekly Q&A written forums, my weekly email, and the opportunity to ask me questions nutrition and health related through our online messaging platform. So um, that's another way that you can just support the podcast. All right, team, enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Sarah Campbell. Dr. Sarah Campbell, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk to me today about exercise, about the gut, about probiotics, antibiotics, sex-based differences, and all of that super fun stuff. Can we kick off by you telling us how you even got into uh, researching this area? Because nowadays we're all so familiar with the idea that the gut is like the nexus of health but probably when you were doing it it might not have necessarily had that uh, reputation. True actually what got me interested was a PubMed search that turned zero results so I was like well this seems ah. like an open area of research so um, previous yeah. to the gut I was actually interested in atherosclerosis and cholesterol metabolism and I came out of my postdoc and had a conversation with a colleague. And he's like, you know, what can you contribute to this area? You're a new assistant professor. You kind of have to explode on the scene. What are you going to do that's different? And I had one of those existential crises. And I'm like, oh, my God, can I even oh. do anything different? And so I have this dual background of a PhD in exercise physiology, but this postdoctoral fellowship that focused on functional foods and nutrition. So I'm like, okay, how do I combine that into something interesting and unique and um, 
leave, you know, with obesity, because that's kind of an area that became interested, obviously, with heart disease, there's all these connections. So I was like, hmm, what if there's this thing going on where you might need, say, more antioxidants, if you're, Mm. say, overweight or obese, there's this maybe chronic low grade inflammation that's going on, do you need, you know, something different? So that got me looking into, you know, digestion absorption. And then I kind of got into like gut, you know, obesity. And that's when some of those really early papers from like Peter Turnbaugh and uh, Jeff Gordon's group and Ruth Lay and um, all of those. I was like, hmm, this is really interesting linking, you know, metabolism to the gut microbiota. And we all know exercise is a really fantastic way to you know, improve metabolic health and make all of these crazy, you know, adaptations. So like, I wonder, and I really did just put in exercise and gut microbiome and there was zero. And I was like, wow, "Wow." I know exactly. I was like, wow. Okay. Well, here I go. And I kind of just started, you know, using that expertise of just study design and looking at how others had looked at the microbiome and kind of incorporated that into our exercise and nutritional interventions. And I guess you could say the rest is history, but that's really how I got started. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And it's quite, you know, your research has informed a lot of what we know about exercise and and how it impacts on the gut. But also, is it a bi-directional relationship? So, so I'd really love to sort of, is there a 101, a 101 I suppose, on how exercise might impact on the gut, but also how your gut might impact on exercise. And maybe they're two quite separate topics. No, and what's really amazing is I just about a month ago, not even 20 days ago, got invited to the microbiology symposium at Rutgers. It's all, you know, for Rutgers, but it's the Rutgers folks who are involved in microbiome. And the title of my talk is the bi-directional link between exercise and the gut microbiota. And yeah. I absolutely think that there's this two two way street. You know, we started off and and as we did as well early in, on in, in my research is okay. If you exercise, does that promote beneficial changes to the gut microbes? You know, and we found mm-hmm. in most studies will tell you, yeah, there's this a uh, you know increase in butyrate producing bacteria. There's some that have shown increases in butyrate itself as the short chain fatty acid in your gut. Others have shown there's an enzyme called B-coat, which is responsible for the production of of butyrate in the intestine. And so, okay, great. So exercise definitely manifests these changes. And I think we've Mm. gotten to the point now is like, okay, we can pretty firmly say exercise can manifest a healthy gut microbiota, right? Mm. But then how do we look at the reverse? What do we do? Does an intact gut microbiota become essential for exercise. And, you know, some of the first papers that started coming out were in the mid 2010s. Is that even a a term? Like 2015 was one of the first papers that I saw where they used um, a model with germ-free animals, which is basically an animal that has Mm -hmm. no microbes. And they basically put it in a little beaker with water and said, hey, let's see how long you can swim. And it swam significantly less than those animals that we call SPF, specific pathogen-free, which have their total microbiome, but no pathogens. So you can honestly say, you know, it wasn't a pathogenic microbe or something detrimental. It's just got all its microbes, but the good ones versus an an animal that has no microbes. 
All right. And so this has been actually looked at a couple of times, um, whether it be using that germ-free model or uh, what we tend to use is antibiotic treatment. So you get this cocktail of antibiotics and you give it to the animal and it's drinking water over the course of a couple of days and you knock out that microbiota and then you kind of retest them after several weeks of exercise training. And the findings are quite similar with that microbiome completely you know, or not completely, but 90-ish percent gone, they have a significantly reduced exercise capacity, you know, time to exhaustion, running distance, and and so forth. So that, I think, says a lot. You know, there have yeah. been other uh, studies that are that are coming out, including some of our own data, that have looked at antibiotic treatment in hypertrophy. So a colleague of mine, John McCarthy, out in um, Kentucky, did this really elegant study with his PhD student, Taylor, and they gave antibiotics to their mice and they have this power protocol where it's meant to produce hypertrophy and all the amazing things that go with that and found that those mice that were given antibiotic did not experience the hypertrophy that animals with an intact microbiome. So there definitely seems to be something with, you know, the, the skeletal muscle. I mean, we took mitochondrial we looked at skeletal muscle function in terms of mitochondrial oxidation and mitochondrial biogenesis and found that with antibiotics, those markers were reduced in the muscle. So there's yeah. definitely some of this bi-directional communication, right? Exercise can influence those gut microbes, but those microbes definitely will then feed back to you know, the skeletal muscle in particular, likely other areas that's lots, you know, looking at the heart. And so forth. So various areas that are critical to, you know, exercise adaptation and exercise tolerance seem to be disrupted either in that germ-free model or when given antibiotics. So it definitely is bi-directional. At least I feel that that evidence emerging starts to really suggest that. Yeah, totally. And it makes sense, right, if you think about all the other lifestyle factors that contribute to the health of the gut and you can see changes in that gut uh, microbiome when you change your diet for as i understand it that like it takes you know just a few days or maybe not even that much when if you change your diet to see a change in some of those species in the gut is that right right so i think one of the things that's more interesting is is it actually that those maybe are changing but you know an kind of an abrupt dietary change will alter then who becomes active or more abundant right yeah. because you've okay. adjusted that you know, there's some evidence that, you know, my colleague at, at Rutgers, Li Ping Zhao, did this really great study that he put out a couple of years ago and was looking at just a, a prebiotic. You know, mm. he has a traditional Chinese, you know, formula that he um, has developed with inulin and various prebiotics that he, you know, is able to use in, in human participants suffering from type 2 diabetes. And Mm. what he's, you know, his data suggests that it's about 28 days to be kind of religiously, you know, or consistently on something to really wholeheartedly shift those communities to where Mm. it will benefit the metabolic health. Because I think that's ultimately what you want to do is not just give a diet a day or two, see, you know, this change in who's there and maybe what they're doing because you've altered a, you know, a component of your diet, but that kind of like lifestyle modification that we're talking about that kind of needs some consistency takes about a month, 28 days. So a couple of weeks. 
Okay, no, that that's yeah, and it's so interesting how labile the gut sort of see like because that's not a ridiculous amount of time to actually see right. that sort of change. And is it the same with exercise series? So how long? So well, I guess my first question is is with regards to a lot of these studies have been done in, in mice. What do we know about the changes in the gut in like a human clinical trial or something with regards to exercise? Right. So um, a colleague of mine, Jeff Woods, um, did a couple of human studies and he showed, which was amazingly nice, that very similar changes to the gut microbiota occurred as a result of exercise interventions in humans as to some Mm. of the mouse studies. Meaning that whatever either model we, you know, the mouse model that we chose or the intervention that we use kind of mimicked what was going on in some of the humans. You know, those butyrate producers were higher, Fecalibacterium, mm. Rosaburia, a bunch of those microbes we kind of put out there in 2016. He was showing also in humans about a year or two later. Um, and so that was that was great to see that translational yeah. nature of an animal study coming over in, into humans. Um, you know, it was really different, not different, but interesting is that kind of once you detrained or stopped exercising, the beneficial changes went away. So like any lifestyle modification, right? Your diet's the same way. Once you start that good diet, once you start that exercise, it produces those changes and they persist as long as you engage in those positive lifestyle factors. The minute you kind of take them away, you'll regress. And that's exactly what exercise training is, right? I mean, you work six to eight weeks to experience alterations in um, endurance versus resistance, you know, training. And it only takes, you know, endurance exercise can start, you know, falling off. We know in a, in a couple of weeks, you know, you go yeah, on yeah. holiday or you go on a break and you've been exercising and you don't, and you come back and you're like, oh, that vacation was a nice, you know, relaxing time. But my exercise really suffered as a, as a result of that. So, yeah. you know, there is something to, the microbiome adapting to exercise as other systems adapt, right? It will adapt as long as you're providing that stimulus. And so that's kind of cool too. It is cool. And and so do these changes in the gut microbiome explain some of the adaptations that we might see with exercise, do you think? That I am writing that grant literally as we speak. Ah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we don't know yet, but that is something you, uh, another sort of hypothesis. So, yeah. So I, sh- I shouldn't say that. We wrote, we did write that grant is in, we're kind of looking at a separate one now of sex differences because we're noticing that there's yes. sex differences. And I know that that's an area that we wanted to, to think about. But, you know, some, um, I think some of the big questions, like you, you say, is, you know, are there groups of microbes? or certain microbes that maybe really help with this, you know, exercise tolerance. And then by what ways do they do that? You know, in some ways with the antibiotics that we knocked out, we can say, okay, well, we saw a reduction in um, oxidative capacity of the mitochondria, which is critical to produce ATP so you can run. So, Mm. you know, that's decent preliminary data to show, okay, well, maybe the microbiota has some link to the mitochondria, which has a bacterial origin, right? So there might be some communication that's going on there. And I think the metabolites that get produced by the microbiota are still sometimes hard to study. I mean, you can go through metabolomics and then get these big data sets, but, you know, 
filing that down to find out what's relevant and how it's acting is a separate set of experiments that then takes the the field one step further. And I think that that's kind of the steps that we're trying to take. Yeah, yeah. So like, I suppose with everything in this area, see, it's, it might seem sort of simple at the at sort of base level, but actually like super complex. Because of course, if you hear that your gut microbiome can impact favorably on exercise performance or um, recovery, then can you actually bottle that and take it as a probiotic? Right. So, you know, they, they did try that. That's the one <laughs> always example is fit biome. I don't know if it's out. I know that there was um, some talks of it coming out, but there was that, that um, study that looked at the marathon runners. It was yes. a cohort of like 10 or 12. It was a small cohort of marathon runners. Then they noticed that this villanella was really abundant in those marathon mm. runners. And they linked that to one of the short chain fatty acids, propionate, and its function of altering, you know, lactate metabolism. And we know mm. lactate is one of those, or the lactate threshold is one of those really factors that dictate performance. So the yeah, idea yeah. is that I, I think that that fit biome was meant to bottle the villanella and, and see if it can improve performance. You know, I think one microbe is not enough. I think in mm. the um, the concept of of what we call a a guild or a functional unit of microbes, that it's usually a group of microbes that function in a particular way that then have an outcome. And given that exercise just has so many outcomes mm. as a result of of performance, that you're going to find. In, in my opinion, and I could be totally wrong, right? This is the whole science of hypothesizing and then seeing if you're right. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways, I think that there's there's going to be several kind of groups or guilds of these microbes that you might find related to various aspects of training adaptations that promote then exercise performance. I don't know if yeah. it's really only going to be one or two or even a handful. I think it's going to be a little more complicated than that. You know, if you want to look at enhancing mitochondrial function, that might be its own group. But then say, does that do the same thing to, you know, changes in angiogenesis with, you know, alterations in capillary density to enhance, you know, blood flow to the skeletal muscle? Would that, you know, be a separate group of microbes? You know, those are the kind of fun questions that we get to ask and play around with in the lab. Yeah, totally. And I can imagine that um, sort of when you put all of those groups of, of microbes together, as a group, is that just that your gut is functioning healthfully and you've got, you know, a really a good environment in there? Whereas maybe it is it that if you don't have these microbes, maybe that's just a sign that your gut isn't as healthy as what it could be. I don't know. Right, right. And and that's great. But you also bring up a really interesting, you know, roadblock in, in research. And, you know, because you talk about the gut as if you know, they're in your, your tummy, as I tell my kids and doing their thing and so on and so forth. But to kind of study those microbes, sometimes you have to take them out and put them in, say, a mouse that has no microbes to see what it does or in a Petri dish to, to culture it and, and see what that metabolic function is. And the reality is, are they ever going to act the same in that tiny little group as they would in the context of that entire community that's actually in your colon? And yeah, yeah, probably not. So that's like, you know, one 
experimental kind of roadblock sometimes that we think about. And, and, but those kind of studies still have to be done. You know, I mean, if yeah. you give, you know, say a mouse that has no microbes, a known set of microbes, and it can increase its runtime. Okay, well, that's saying something, you know, then yeah, you totally. look at the tissue and say, okay, is the mitochondria density bigger? Is the capillary density of the muscle fibers getting hypertrophy? You know, then you can start looking at little things here or there within the, you know, the tissue itself to then determine, okay, it was A, but not B, right? This group of yeah. microbes did A, but not B. Okay, so back to the drawing board. How do we find the group of microbes that did this or that can do that. So I think it'll be in business for quite some time because I feel like there's a lot of questions <laughs> out there. But, um, you know, it's just a lot to to think about and consider, but it's still a lot of fun to do. Yeah, totally. If we're thinking about, you know, if exercise or the fact that exercise does change um, the gut, like what kind of exercise threshold are we talking about? So first from an aerobic capacity, like what? So if someone is coming from nothing, what type of or how much what's the sort of um prescription if you like right for that aerobic training in order to actually impact the gut that's a good question i i don't know that we have the answer to that just yet you know yeah. um most of you know i'd have to go back to jeff's paper to see what he did with those humans several years ago and and what he kind of implemented for them i think it was kind of the um my guess is probably close to along the lines of what some of the guidelines are at least four to five days a week, 30 minutes a day, you know? Um, but, and, and I think that that's another question in the field that what I was saying in that one talk is, you know, where are we going with this? Well, you have to look at all types of exercise, right? Dif the different yeah. modalities, you know, does the marathon runner have a very different microbiota than the sprinter, which has a different mm. microbiota from the resistance trained athlete, and does the bodybuilder have the same microbiota as the the strength trained athlete because they do very different things, you know, diet wise that could contribute. Yes. So I think that for the aspect of prescription right now, most studies have looked at aerobic exercise and we know that that's, you know, beneficial. And there's been a, um, a few on high intensity interval training, and that seems to, again, manifest itself uh, beneficially with the gut as well. Not yeah. as much with resistance training, unfortunately, and definitely not enough to say, okay, you need to do X number of minutes, X days a week for yeah. X number of weeks to actually show this change. I mean, we exercise um, our animals for about three months, you know, to, to kind of see that um, alteration. And three months in mice years, in mice sort of um, right, right. Uh, time, is that like, you know, a year, a year in human time? I don't know. Is it? So I wouldn't, I don't know that cycle? I'd say, you know, in, in that regard, um, one of the reasons we do three months is we kind of let them instead of, although we've done this as well for six weeks where you put them on a treadmill and you make them run for four, 45, 50 minutes a day, four five days a week, you know, which is the human recommendation. Um, yes. Yes. But there's also, you know, the argument that, you know, those might, you know, those mice naturally run so much longer. So there are some studies where we just let them be on a freewheel and just let them get on whenever they want to. And so, you know, that might mimic more closely, you know, say physical activity rather than prescribed exercise, but it's still kind of more suited to what that species 
would be in terms of activity. Yeah, You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, those are different kinds of, you know, factors to, to think about. Um, nonetheless, I mean, it's, it's still kind of hard to like, you know, get, you know, those studies done in humans where you're like, okay, can I have a muscle biopsy and a piece of your colon and some of that heart <laughs> yeah. tissue? And cause I really would like to see, you know, what's going on. And, and so mechanistically, sometimes those, you know, studies, you have to go kind of back and forth between, you know, the preclinical yeah. and the clinical model to really kind of test how it goes. Okay. We saw this here. Let's bring this here. How do we work that? And then, okay, yeah, yeah. back to the drawing board and, and so forth. So. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. And then Sarah, you mentioned about the whole detraining sort of impact. So, you know, someone might be exercising and quite fit and then for whatever reason, so they get sick, like, you know, like so many people, for example, with COVID, uh -huh. like they've got this real post COVID fatigue and they're unable to do the type of training that they once were just as an example, I suppose, or it's taking them a time, like how long would it take for the, the, those changes to be reversed in the gut? Do we know that? So, you know, that's so funny you asked and gave the COVID example because for, we put, we put a proposal together and fortunately it wasn't funded to look at, you know, those kind of things because, mm. you know, physical activity is obviously so important. And we've in, at least in New Jersey, you know, we were talking with the, the major hospital here and they were noting nearly 50% of their, their patients who noted that they could at least do the minimum recommendations in the, in the ACSM recommends 150 minutes per week, that 50% of them post COVID said that they were no longer able to do those kinds of exercise yeah. anymore. Like those long COVID yeah. symptoms really impacted that. So that, you know, that's a really great question. Um, in terms of, you know, reversal, my guess is, you know, I don't know that there's a specific Time course, I know, for example, if you're on some antibiotics and you go off those to kind of re-get your microbiota back to its normal, whatever level that is for you, is about two to three weeks, you know? Mm. Um, so not nearly as long as it would take for that lifestyle modification to, you know, really alter it that 28 days. So, um, you know, my guess is it would probably be still somewhere within that that month. I don't know. We've pinpointed it exactly how long the detraining um would affect. Yeah. I think what will answer some of that is to find out to the extent to which the microbiota might maybe regulate some of those training adaptations. And then, mm. you know, we know some of those can go away in two to three weeks. Do you then notice that the microbiota is kind of reverted itself as well? You know? And yeah, so yeah. um yeah. but yeah, it, you know, like I said, it takes a couple of weeks to kind of have it Re rebound. So my guess is within that same time frame, you'll probably start to see a reversal, especially if you're yeah. no longer stimulating the system to do what it, it normally does on an like a training day. Yeah. And how does it even work, Sarah? How does exercise change the gut microbiota? Like what? So you talked about the changes in the production of short chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Is that? And you talked. Is that predominantly what we're seeing? So th that for right now, those are some of the big things in terms of, of metabolites that we're seeing. Um, you know, mm. we've run a full, you know, metabolomics at, with some of our other exercise um, animal models that we've been um, getting back. And as I said, those data files are enormous. So getting through some of that is quite, uh, quite cumbersome, but um 
I think that that's a a great question. I think some of the things that you'll notice um, that are probably going to be linked to the gut are related to substrate metabolism, which I think makes a lot of sense given the link to the gut and metabolic health, which is pretty clearly laid out. And one of the major side effects of exercise training is, you know, this transition from using, you know, predominantly carbohydrate as a fuel when you're untrained to, you know, the use of more fatty acids. And, and I think that is one of the, the major things that probably enables that shift in the gut microbes. Yeah. How much does individual variation sort of play a part? And obviously I want to, and so my next question will be about sex differences, but just individually, like, is it possible for everyone, do you think, to see the same changes or is there something about their baseline gut health or gut function? Is that going to sort of dictate what happens for the individual? Right. Um, You know, that's a good question. So I think you know, the estimate is that one third of the gut microbe is kind of ubiquitous across everybody, but two thirds mm. is really unique, which is why they're kind, you know, the, the really excited gut microbiologists are saying, well, it could be just like blood work. You know, it could be like your own very unique, you know, signature. Mm. And to say that there's probably no variation, you know, that that baseline gut microbiota that's unique to you might allow or disallow for certain adaptations to occur. I think that'd probably be naive. I don't know that I've looked into that literature as much or if it's even answered in the literature. You know, does that baseline mm. gut microbiota either prevent or allow, you know, certain things? We do know that the the microbiota is settled by like two or three years old. Right. Wow, yeah. And then it yeah. it changes over time due to we know aging is one of the things fluctuations in in sex hormones um you know antibiotic treatment for example but that microbiota is shaped pretty early you know even from where you birthed vaginally or versus a c-section mm. and you know mm-hmm. that kind of colonization can almost immediately play a role and you know they hate to say but there there's some evidence out there that predisposes to yeah. metabolic health issues. And it's, it's like, is it really, you know, does it really have yeah. to start that early? Is there no hope? And I think the research out there on diet and exercise and other things, you know, will tell you, no, there's hope, follow yeah. your healthy lifestyle modifications, and you can get some of those beneficial changes. So I guess in some ways, I'm saying it's probably there's probably some aspects of the microbiota that are unique to that individual and might dictate how they respond to things. But I think some of the lifestyle modifications in terms of healthy diet, engaging and exercise in particular, the two areas that I look at, I think can be achieved regardless of some of that baseline potentially. Yeah. And it's a little, that reminds me a little bit as you were talking about the different, um, you know, just the the potential impact of, of what we understand about people's genetic profile and that, you know, you are born with a particular set of genes, but your lifestyle will dictate how they're expressed and the impact that they might potentially have. So it sounds a little bit sort of similar to what you right, just Right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, the whole area of epigenetics, as you're just suggesting, is, you know, how do those environmental factors influence? And, and, and you're right, I think many times those provide a greater stimulus to change than some of the hardcore genes, you know, because you don't want to get super settled into, oh, you know, everybody in my family is, is this way. I'm, I'm, 
bound to end up that way. And and the truth is, you don't, you know, you don't have to be bound to end up that way. You can, you know, maybe engage in some things that, that don't. And then when you start to look at those and say, oh, you know, you know, I say, well, yeah, mom was really sedentary most of her time. And I've been really yeah. exercising most of the time, you know? And so there are these really big differences in, in what I can see where, you know, maybe she was versus where I am. Totally. And a tangent, but you mentioned cholesterol metabolism at the kickoff of our call. And I often say that with people about cholesterol, like a lot of people are sort of that, oh, well, high cholesterol runs in my family. See, but I would argue that that is the one thing that is genetically almost like <laughs> that has one of the highest genetic predispositions, actually. Oh, okay. It's so <laughs> interesting. But yeah, yeah. But there are things that you can, that doesn't mean oh, that you, sure. that the, you know, you, that exercise and a healthy diet isn't going to change your, yeah, your risk profile, I suppose, maybe outside of the cholesterol. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story. Yeah. Oh, that's quite funny. <laughs> um, now, now you mean, so, so the sex difference thing, that's something I'm really interested in. How much does the mean, so I suppose, First, the differences between males and females, I feel like I really want to just see, you know, what's going on there. But also, what about a change for a woman across a menstrual cycle? Like, how might that impact on gut and, and the, the gut flora? So uh, that's right. two questions. So what's interesting is there have been a couple studies on, on menstrual cycle. My, my, actually, my master's student just wrote his whole paper on sex differences. So thankfully, it's wow. fresh in the old mind. And so there doesn't really seem to be a lot across the, the menstrual cycle. You know, some, you know, there are obviously hormonal fluctuations that occur, but that doesn't necessarily seem to really shift the gut microbiota too much. Um, mm -hmm. I think major changes to hormones, ovariectomy or, you know, estrogen deficiency, right, is yes. going to manifest a, a major change. Um, and, and, we've seen that in our work and it's, it's been shown in, in others. And so understanding the roles that the sex hormones play and how it interacts with the gut microbiota is a really open area. And, and, you know, to qualify the exercise impacts with that are, are kind of like what we're looking at right now, potentially or writing up in this proposal and just kind of understanding how, how do those things function and interact with one another? I mean, most studies you know, we'll show that there, there is a difference in, you know, kind of just baseline profiles between men and women. And so, you know, that's a thing we've seen that in, in our, you know, studies as well, that the predominant microbes are different. The short chain fatty acid profiles are different. Um, but then you think about it metabolically, we are very different. Estrogen is a mm. fat metabolism favor, you know, favoring mm. hormone. And we tend to use more fat when we exercise compared to males who use a more carbohydrate-based, um, you know, metabolic profile. So it would make sense that those gut microbes would be different if we wholeheartedly believe in a host gut, you know, symbiosis. Yeah. And so to, to me, it kind of, it does make sense in, in that way. Yeah. And then does that then manifest in performance differences? Um, and the impact that that the gut might have for women versus men is that different, right? So when you actually do that search, because I did, that was another zero the other day. 
Oh, interesting. So that's in the grant. I don't publish. No, everyone's going to hear this. So yes, everyone, that's what we're doing. (laughs) So So no one trumps you on that. Right. You know, um, but the good scientist reveals things that we're already doing in the lab and then you put them in a proposal. So we're already kind of, you know, kind of looking at these things. But um, it depends, you know, what I'm also noticing is it really just, it does depend on kind of like what species you look at and what aspect of performance you're looking at, right? Yes. Because mice, you know, female mice, many studies will tell you they run more than male mice. Other studies will say, and they really don't, they run the same. Humans, we know there's an inherent biological kind of difference where there is about a 10% difference, especially in elite kind of performances, you know. Um, I was just reading a a great, uh, review out of, uh, a joiner's lab at the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, they were saying things like thoroughbred horses and greyhounds show no difference in elite performance between Mm -hmm. the male and the females. Um, Mm -hmm. but then when you look at other aspects like fatigue and, or Mm -hmm. type one muscle fibers or, strength, you'll see very distinct sex differences. So I think it it really comes down to what aspect of exercise and performance are you looking at? And then using mm-hmm. those interesting models that I was telling you about earlier, potentially like, you know, using that germ-free mouse to see if there's microbiota differences and then how that might manifest a phenotype in, in those types of animals. Does it make you more fatigue resistant? Does it not? And and in really kind of looking at that, because, you know, that's the one thing you have to really look at it in, in yeah. that spe- level of specificity, because it's not uniform across, you know, women are good at this and men have their advantages here. And so it gets very specific. So you have to think about those studies very carefully and read them very carefully. Yeah, no, I appreciate that because um, as you were talking about fatigability, I was thinking about uh, ultra running and how, you know, we have women who are and you don't see this in marathon but you have women who who uh, outperform men you know they're quicker along that super long distance right and it would be interesting to know whether or not there was any sort of interaction with with the gut you know what impact or what sort of contribution might the gut microbiota and fatigability for example does that even play a role in in, right. in that right I know it's yeah. so many cool questions, yeah. right? Because then you start thinking about other things too with ultra marathons and then, you know, those really intense long distance runs or hot human environments. And then you do start mm. thinking about other aspects in the intestine that get disrupted. Does barrier function become an issue? That whole yes. aspect of leaky gut. Cause those are two really good examples that, that we know of that impact leaky gut. You know, most other people, Oh, leaky gut, leaky gut. You know, but exercise wise, it's really, you know, those intense, prolonged workouts or hot human environments that kind of activate some of those things. And so, um, you know, that then compounds the issue. How do you separate those types of things? So, yeah, totally. Um, Sarah, you mentioned estrogen deficiency and gut and how that impacts on gut function. How does, or or maybe the gut microbiome, how does... uh, the gut change are like postmenopause. Like, do women have more in the research? Do we see women have more gut issues, or should expect more gut issues postmenopause? Or, um, you know, in the small cohort sure. of people that I just talk to, yes, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate to say yeah. it, but you know, there's, there's definitely something, you know, interesting about that. I, I think, you know, an also understudied area that might be equally as important potentially is the progesterone, right? I mean, we get so yes. focused on estrogen that my one, you know, current master student, she's like, you know, Dr. C, I was reading all of these things and interacting with some of the physicians at the clinic I'm looking at. And, you know, they're just concerned that progesterone gets lost. And that might be really important in, you know, how that impacts the the microbiota and that function over time and, and with aging. And I think that's an interesting aspect of things. It's because we get so focused on estrogen and saying, well, that's mm. the major cause of everything. And the reality is, well, how does progesterone's fluctuations also change, right? And yeah. so, um, you know, we do notice that there are changes, you know, with aging and with estrogen deficiency and, you know, the diversity of the microbiota and, and, and those things, which could then lead to potentially GI related issues. But um, as a person who has pre-existing GI issues, and I know I'm like, I know everybody laughs when I'm getting to that age where it's like things are starting for sure, right? Mm, like, yeah. That I I definitely, you know, notice that things just either don't metabolize the same or I can't yeah. eat the same. And I was like, oh, this was okay a year or so ago, but I have to avoid this for some reason. And I'm pretty consistent with, because of my GI, just be, with exercise and with diet. And so, you know, one of the other explanations as well as it my age and the estrogen and, you know, potentially yeah. changes in that. And, and so I think about that a lot. The kids say, oh, your mom, your, you know, stomach hurts again. Shocker, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just wait till you lose your something, you know, and I have boys, so I can't say estrogen, but you know, <laughs> see what yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, that's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I, that's similar with um, a lot of women that I speak to is, is that, you know, their tolerance or sensitivities their food sensitivities just increase mm. as they get into perimenopause and, and that menopause sort of phase. And I wonder if you study the gut and look at the, the uh, microbiome and, and much we were talking about, you know, can you take a probiotic to help with your uh, exercise performance? Like, can you take probiotics to help sort of like settle your gut across this time and just help that environment? Right. So those are, you know, those are great questions. There's um, a fantastic position stand on probiotics and exercise that came out a couple of years ago. Um, and probiotics and exercise, the evidence is really equivocal. Like there's not a mm. lot to overtly suggest that taking a probiotic will enhance performance, whether it be aerobic or anaerobic. But um, they don't do any harm, right? Yeah, so yeah. you'd never, I would never just say, you know, don't take it. It's going to hurt you. I mean, it might not help mm. you, but it's not going to hurt you. There, there mm. is really good evidence, you know, in several meta-analyses that show that it does reduce sick time, right? Yeah. And, you know, a healthy athlete or not sick athlete is a training athlete. So in that way, you can say, okay, could it could help performance just simply because you're training and you're not sick. Um, mm. But, you know, I think the probiotic question, you know, with aging and, you know, to kind of, you know, help is is a good one and again i would say i it I'm, it's not going to hurt you you know yeah. it's one of those things once you start it stay on it because once you come off of it 
everything will revert. So if you keep doing those probiotics, I would say in the context of, you know, a healthy diet, where you're also getting prebiotics and feeding those microbes what they need and so on and so forth, that that's probably the best approach is, you know, not just solely rely on one intervention, but have that in the context of the other lifestyle or healthy lifestyle things that you want to do. Yeah, totally. So, and that's, I want to talk to you a little bit about that as well, like the whole prebiotic story, because that's the thing that's keeping your, your gut micro, that, you know, that's growing, that's seeding the sort of the, the probiotics in your gut, right? In, in essence, it, it, um, well, it depends, right? So the probiotics, I think are really limited to certain types of species and strains. There's not really much that goes outside of like the lactobacillus and the bifidobacterium, right? And we know there are so many other microbes in the intestine that maybe could be beneficial and, and develop. And I think that that's where the literature, you know, should be going is looking at the function of these other microbes and could they be beneficial and bottled for lack of a better word, right? And, you know, the prebiotics are, yeah, what provide really the microbes with their food. They metabolize that. That's what leads to the production of those short chain fatty acids that then have those beneficial, you know, aspects to the, not only the intestine, but we know now systemic health and so forth. And so Mm. you, you give them the probiotics, which you give them the bugs, and then you provide the prebiotics, which is the food for the, the bugs that are there as well. And they kind of then again, work in, in concert with each other. Sarah, do we know much about how um, butyrate, so butyrate's that short chain fatty acid that is produced to help sort of with like ATP and or to help feed the gut yeah. microbiota. What about beta hydroxybutyrate? So like, does it matter whether you just, you know, you could take like a ketone ester, for example, or like a keto diet helps you produce more beta hydroxybutyrate. Does that change? Does it is it, yeah, what's my question? I think my question is exogenous sort of butyrate versus what you are able to produce. Produce Like, does that change the impact? Yeah. You know what? That is a great question. And I am going to do one of those age old, don't ever be afraid to say that I don't know, because I haven't really looked into that literature as much as I should have. I know there are studies out there where they've fed butyrate and other aspects, but I don't know them well enough to be like, yeah, go it definitely says this because that would be misleading and bad science person on me to say that. So I haven't really, you know, looked at, I know those studies are out there. I don't know mm. that literature well enough to say, Hey, here's like a quick summary of what I think um, is in there. So yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. No, that's, that's good. Okay. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, completely. No, I love it. Um, it's, it's cause I see that often as a, you know, when you read about the types of things you should be eating for your gut and what you need, like I'm big on for people who tolerate fiber, you know, I'm a big vegetable person. Mm. And I, you know, I think that that's where most of us should really be focusing a lot of diet content or whatever. But of course, you've got people who might go on a keto diet, um, a very specific keto diet that's very rigorous and 20 grams of carbohydrate or less per day. So you're not going to get that same fiber. And one of the arguments is, well, you know, you produce beta hydroxybutyrate. So you know, you get that butyrate for the gut and the gut's going to be fine. So I just wanted, yeah, um, it's an interesting area for sure. Yes, it is. And maybe I'll read and send you a summary at some point, but I don't, I don't know <laughs> it well enough. busy for that. Yes, I don't know it well enough to just, you know, to, to provide a good, solid answer to that no. question. But I'm pretty sure that some of that's out there. Like I said, I have seen, I yeah. have seen them, the studies yeah. where they fed 
butyrate, but not necessarily well enough to know what they've found. Yeah. And actually, doesn't this just speak to the fact that, you know, you're a professor in gut health and exercise and probiotics, but it's such a massive area. Like, that, yeah. you, you know, you it, how can you possibly be an expert across, you know, of all course. of it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and even, you know, even still when I, you know, I'm searching for certain things when, you know, you're writing significance and innovation sections for um, grants, you end up finding keywords you never thought might be relevant. And you're like, oh, wow, there yeah. is this whole area that I didn't know about or <laughs> that I thought wasn't as robust as it is. And it, it really is more robust than I anticipated. And and that's, you know, interesting. You know, another old saying besides don't be afraid to say, I don't know, is if you're thinking about it, chances are someone already has done it, right? And that's sometimes how <laughs> yeah. quickly science changes and, um, yeah. and or, you know, how people think and have, have done those things. So those are two kind of good rules <laughs> that I live by. Yeah, uh, totally. Um, can I ask you about antibiotics? I heard you talk on Mike T. Nelson's podcast mm -hmm. about a mouse study looking at antibiotics and how that potentially blunted the training effect mm -hmm. of, on a, on, in that power study, as you mentioned. So that was looking at a mice model. Like, do we think that there is crossover there with regards to us training and, and potentially, you know, because we're on antibiotics, people on antibiotics. Yes. Um, it's not an infrequent or an uncommon thing. So right. is there anything we need to think about there? So, you know, it's funny after that conversation and when we were writing another grant, I started looking at and, and finding those of those random keywords that I never thought. And people had actually been looking at performance with antibiotics since the 1980s. And I was like, see, wow. I should have known someone else had already thought about it and did a study. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the studies looking at the antibiotics, um, you know, again, the evidence is equivocal, meaning they found performance decrements or, you know, nothing has changed about it. And I think one of the biggest caveats was always if, do you have these people and you're they're taking antibiotics because they're unwell and then you're asking them to, mm. to do this exercise, right? So yeah. is it really the antibiotic that's causing the fatigue in these studies that have noted fatigue or is it the illness potentially, mm. right? So mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things that would really have to, you look at it, you know, as Mike was saying, and he's like, well, we just take a bunch of healthy people and give them a massive dose of antibiotics for a week and see what happens. And I was like, you can write the IRB. I'll do the studies. We'll get, make it happen. And, and, you know, of course, then you start thinking about that. And I'm like, oh, that's six months of work before you even see a human in a lab that, you know, the, that process. But there, there have been studies looking at antibiotics and performance since I, I mentioned one of the earlier studies I found was in the early 1980s. Um, and again, one of the caveats was that you have to make sure you test them if they're on the antibiotics when they're not feeling ill because that's a major yeah. confounding variable but you know there yeah. are some studies that that definitely showed that there was some fatigue associated with the antibiotic use okay and so you're are you currently writing as a grant in your future in that space or is that sort of removed from your more sort of uh current interests well i'd say antibiotic treatment is one of the ways that you can eliminate the microbiota in and so, you know, that definitely comes into play if we want to determine the role of the microbiota by giving them the animals an antibiotic cocktail so that it knocks it out and then asking, you know, asking them 
to do run or, you know, do yeah, these yeah. kinds of things. Um, a lot of times the antibiotic model is, you know, is cheaper than, you know, germ-free mice are really expensive. They require a really specific facility and really specific handling and and so forth. So, you know, those are the two kind of accepted routes to go to really look at, you know, the microbiota's implications in a, in a function is to either have that mouse with no microbes whatsoever or to eliminate those microbes with the, the cocktail. Yeah. And Sarah, on the antibiotics and just us, like if someone is on a course of antibiotics for whatever reason, outside of performance, like at what point, you know, how long does it take to restore the gut post antibiotics? Are you sort of across that? Like, do we know, do we know how long? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, About two to three weeks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. About two to three weeks. Yeah. They say to, to kind of recover. My guess is that it, there's probably some, the variations probably, how long were you on them? How high was the dose? Mm. How strong mm. was the antibiotic? You know, there, there are definitely differences in, in strength in those. And, and you know, potentially what microbes do they um, target? The reason we give yeah. a cocktail is because you have the gram negatives and the gram, the gram negatives and the gram positives and then this and then yeah. this. So you kind of have to get a couple of broad spectrum ones to knock them all out. So, you know, is a a really powerful broad spectrum antibiotic might knock out more than, you know, just your run of the mill, whatever. My yeah, guess totally. is I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not the doctor of that. So my yeah. guess is I don't think all the antibiotics are the same. There's definitely ones that are much more potent than, than others. Yeah. My guess is that's yeah. probably going to play a role in, in that time to reseed after you've used them. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then, you know, finally, Sarah, with all of your research looking at um, the impact that exercise has on the gut and and vice versa, so what are some sort of practical take-homes, I suppose, for for some people in this area? So either what they can do to enhance their performance or just ensure that, yeah, what are some practical take-homes? Right. No, gotcha. Um, I think I, maybe we'll start where we finished is that if you are maybe on antibiotics and feel well enough to train, that if you're not training up to your full potential, don't freak out. It could be because you've disrupted some microbes, right? That, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, might be critical for your training and, you know, just have a little patience, then allow yourself to recover from that cold and let your microbes recover from that and you'll be back on your way. Um, so I think that that's one thing just to, to think about given, you know, some of the, the findings that have come out recently and, and we've found, um, I think the, the combination you know, in the, the previous talk topic, it was the combination of like a pre and a probiotic, right? Make sure not only you decide to take the probiotics, you know, that's great, but make sure you're also getting that nutrition to really feed the microbes, those complex carbohydrates and those fibers that they really like to metabolize that can provide those short chain fatty acids that reinforce that those mucus layers in the intestine that really protect the epithelium from the inflammation and the immune responses and the pathogenic bacteria. And I think some of the other things is that, you know, when you do exercise that you might not realize it, but you are hopefully experiencing some beneficial changes to that, that microbiota that should, you know, feed back to enhancing that performance. And, you know, that's Mm. kind of where that field is headed and and hopefully you'll find some things coming out soon from either our lab or others and and how that might work. And so yeah. I think those are some of the the biggest ones to to really think no. about with the field. 
Yeah, that's great. And then for people who don't have great gut health, you know, have have struggled for whatever reason, and you know, you mentioned some of the major uh, impact that lifestyle can have on the gut. Like, would exercise be part of the prescription to better gut health? You know, we talk about collagen and probiotics and and certain other things. Yeah, you know, in the I, in the field. Yeah, yeah. I think exercise can. You know, this is where exercise is good, right? Kind of comes in. Mm. I think exercise is definitely a part of prescription for any, you know, not ailment, that's not the right word I'm looking for. But you know, I think exercise incorporating exercise is just a very good way to enhance overall well being, right? It, yeah, it yeah. doesn't just it's going to have your cardiovascular benefits, it's going to have your respiratory benefits, it can enhance gut health. We know that it's a really great preventative for things like colon cancer, right? So mm. engaging in that kind of, you know, exercise, regular activity, can be a good prevention for those kinds of things. So, you know, I think if you do suffer from gut health, I think a thing to think about is maybe start off with something like walking or even brisk walking before you get into something more intense because you want to see how that and, you know, whatever your disorder is responds to it. But Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to try to exercise and see what kind of um, changes might happen as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you're right. It makes so much sense, right? Like I've heard people say this so often is that if you could like put exercise in a pill and like sell it, you'd probably solve 80% of people's sort of health right. conditions. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, it works on so many levels. So it yeah. does. It does. Yeah. And I think that's why you can't get it in one pill because it does so many different things. You'd probably need a yeah. pill for this and that and that and that. And it, in yeah. the end, you'd end up <laughs> taking too many pills. So just exercise. Yeah, just exercise. <laughs> that is awesome, Sarah. Well, um, I'm really excited by some of those potential irons in the fire that you've got yeah. that we will potentially see sort of coming out of your lab. Um, and where can people find out more information just about what you're doing in your in your lab? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm at Rutgers University in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and if you just really, you know, Campbell Lab or Exercise and Gastrointestinal Health Lab at Rutgers, that will lead you pretty much right to us. So you'll be able to find us there. Amazing. Awesome, Sarah. Will you enjoy the rest of your day? Thank you so much for um, coming on and chatting to me. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Alrighty, hopefully you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed chatting to Sarah and as you would have guessed from our conversation we had about interesting areas to explore, there's such a wealth of information that we don't know actually about the gut and exercise in, in all areas. So really looking forward to seeing what uh, Sarah's lab sort of brings out in the next couple of years. And next week on the podcast, I talk to Dr. Carrie Jones, who is the Head of Medical Education at Rupa Health, all about hormones. Super great conversation, that one. So hope to see you next week. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or head on to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to the recipe portal access, you can sign up to one of my fat loss or real food nutrition plans or book a one-on-one consultation with me. All right, team, you have a great day. See you later.